technology cooperates. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. So we'll pray that it does this morning. Revelation 4.1 is where I'm going to start, and then I'll flip over to 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. I want to, I want to read that whole section just for you to have an idea of what's going on there. So let me, let me begin with Revelation 4.1. After these things I looked... And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning at verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled by spirit, or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming... The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Verse 11 is where I want to get my title from today. And for this reason, God, notice that, for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe in the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Father, I thank you today again for what we've already felt here and seen here. Lord, I pray now that you would move in the preaching of your word, that your spirit would continue to deal with hearts and draw folks uh, to a saving knowledge in Christ. Lord, I pray that again, uh, you would increase and I would decrease, that everything that is done here today is for you and your glory, and we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, the title of my message today is The Strong Delusion. I want to look at for a moment, and obviously I can't possibly unpack everything that's going to take place in this time frame, but I want to look at an event called the rapture, and I want to look at what is going to take place here on earth after the rapture takes place. So uh, back in World War II times, towards the end of his life, at the end of his life, Winston Churchill was planning his funeral. And before he died, his wishes for this was that he wanted to have a bugler set in the highest tower in the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral. And he wanted that bugler to play taps uh, for him. And the taps obviously represented the ending of his physical life. But then he had a second part that he wanted to be done. As soon as the taps were finished playing, he wanted another bugler placed on the other side of the dome to play revelry. Because he said, it's time to get up, it's time to get up, it's time to get up in the morning. And I thought, man, what a great illustration that all of us as believers in Christ are going to die. But the moment that we take our last breath here, it's time to get up. We're going home to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thought. Not that dying is exciting, but when death is defeated and eternal life begins... It is something to get excited about. We ought to rejoice in the fact that, yes, when we go to a funeral and there's a body there and we grieve and we mourn, the Bible certainly says that there is grief involved for those of us that are left behind. But if that person was a believer, they are rejoicing and celebrating because life has just begun for them in the presence of Christ and in His kingdom. And so 
one of the greatest verses in the Bible that talks about this fact that, yes, these physical bodies are going to die. Death is a separation. It's a separation from the physical and the spiritual. The body, this body dies, but our spirit never dies. It's going to live in, eternally in one of two places, heaven or hell, based on what you do with Jesus Christ. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 54, the Bible says, Paul writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. That means that he is sharing something that has been previously unknown. This was new information that Paul was sharing. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Now, he's not talking about taking a nap. He's talking about dying. We go to places called cemeteries. That's a Latin word that means a resting place, a sleeping place. But those people aren't sleeping, they're dead. So he says, we shall not all sleep. We shall not all die. What do you mean, Paul? We shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we those that are there in that moment that haven't died yet we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality so when this corruptible he's talking about this body this flesh that is dying and decaying he says that that body is going to be changed and we will put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory. The moment you trusted Christ, death was swallowed up in victory for you because Jesus laid down his life, was placed in a tomb, and three days later, he arose and he walked out of that grave and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And because he defeated death, all those who trust him likewise have death defeated in their place because of Jesus. That is the promise and the proof is that Jesus lives. All other religions, all other religious leaders, many have claimed to have risen from the dead. And yet, no matter where you go, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, it doesn't matter. There are bones and bodies in the ground because they did not come back to life, but Jesus did. And that makes the difference. The empty tomb is the greatest testimony that Christianity is true above any other religion. You have got to deal with that question. Even as an unbeliever, you have got to deal with the question, where is the body of Jesus? There have been theories proposed, but none have ever held any weight, and none have certainly ever been proven, because there is no body. The body is alive in glory, and the body will return one day. So what does all that mean for us? We, some 2,000 years now have passed since Christ has died. People have lived, lives died, and the world seems to chug along. So what is next for God's plan in the church? The next thing that will take place prophetically is the rapture of the church. That is the next major event on the timeline. And so you might be here today and you say, I've heard of the rapture, but I really don't understand it. I don't know what it is. It's not my intent to try to go super long or super deep into trying to explain this. It would take far too much time. But I want to give you an understanding of what the rapture is. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, we find these verses that Paul writes. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. Now listen to the order. The dead, those who have died already that are in the ground, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, so whatever generation it is, when Christ returns, which it very well could be ours, we are still currently alive. We who are alive and remain when the Lord descends shall be caught up with them in the clouds, who's with them, the dead, that have just risen first, to meet the Lord in the air, thus shall we always be with the Lord. In that verse, we don't see the word rapture. Rapture is a Latin word, so the Bible was translated in Greek and Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic, and then for a thousand years, the language of the people was Latin. So the Bible got translated into a version by a guy named Jerome called the Latin Vulgate. 
many of our words, especially in the King James Bible, are still Latin translations, not Greek, okay? But the word rapture is a Latin word. So you say, well, if it's not in my Bible, then where do we get this idea from? You'll notice when I read 1 Thessalonians in verse 17, it says, we who are alive and remain will be caught up. We will be snatched up. That word is harpazo, and that's where we get the idea of a rapture. It is grabbing someone and violently pulling them up with you. Imagine if your child was out on the road and you saw a car coming and you ran out there and grabbed them to get them out of danger. That's the concept. That's the idea of harpazo, and, and it's translated rapture in the Latin Vulgate, and we rapturo, and then we get the word rapture from that. So this is where the teaching comes from. It's in other passages, but this is probably the most well known and it is it is the belief that when the Lord Jesus is ready when the Father sends him he is coming back for his church he is coming back all those that are believers who have died will be taken up including those that are still alive here on earth when he returns and will also be taken up so there is going to be a removal of many many people from the earth when the Lord Jesus comes back and so we see something that I read to you from Revelation 4.1. Find your place there again if you're following along because we'll spend a moment or two uh, at Revelation 4.1 again. I want you to see this because the book of Revelation obviously can be a very difficult book for people. There are all sorts of differing opinions on the timing of things and the translating of things. And again, I'm not here today to confuse you or try to explain every different position from pre-mill to post-mill to ah-mill to pre-trib, mid-trib, Satan's wrath, God's wrath, all these other things that fall into it. We can talk about that at another time. But what I do want to say is that I am speaking from a pre-millennial, pre-tribulation view, which means that God is going to do all these things before the tribulation takes place. And he's going to remove this, he's going to return before the millennial reign. So that is my view and that is where I am coming from today as I look at these scriptures. And so when we look at Revelation, and we try to at least break the book down, I think chapter 4 is a vitally important chapter. They're all important, but this is a really important chapter for understanding the book. Because look at how it begins. Look at how chapter 4, verse 1 begins. After these things. And then look at how verse 1 ends. I will show you these things which must take place after this. So both of those beginning and ending of verse 1 are using the same Greek sentence metatauta which means before or after or immediately after I'm sorry immediately after. So why does that matter? Why am I bringing all this stuff up? Well sometimes when I button my shirts if I wear a button up shirt button it, and I get down to the bottom and I miss the button everything's off. Right? You ever been there? You're buttoning up your shirt and you get the first one wrong. If you don't get it right at the beginning, everything else is off by the time you get to the end. And I feel like that's the way with the book of Revelation. If we don't get the outline right, everything gets off. And so when we look at this transition verse, why do I bring that up? Is because let me go over to Revelation 1 real quick. And let me read to you one verse there and I think you'll see where I'm going with this. Revelation 1.19 You'll see a parallel here between 119 and 41. The glorified Christ is speaking to John on the Isle of Patmos. John has been exiled because of his faith. He's on this little itty-bitty island out uh, off of Greece, off the coast of Greece. And he has been left there to basically die. And he sees this vision of the glorified Christ. And God is showing him these things that we have in the book of Revelation. And here's what, here's what Jesus says to John in verse 19. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place metatauta after this. Same thing that we see in verse 1. So verse 19 that I just read to you, that's really how you outline the book of Revelation. Jesus says to him, write the things which you have seen. John is seeing these things in chapter 1. All the visions and all the things begin in chapter 1. Then the next outline would be the things which are. So in that generation, the church is who he's speaking to. Chapters 2 and 3 all involve the church. And we are still in what's called the church age now. For 2,000 years, God has been using the church to preach the gospel, to reach sinners with the good news of Christ and his salvation. 
and we are continuing along that path until something ends the church age, which will be the rapture of the church. You see, when the church is taken out, the church age ends. And so John says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God tells him to write down the things you've seen, chapter 1, the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, and this present age, which we are still in the church age, and the things which will take place after this. After this is the end of the church age, the rapture and what follows. So that's really how you outline the book of Revelation. And I would say one of the things that you'll notice when you read this book, chapters 2 and chapter 3, over and over, you see God saying, let, let he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. After chapter 3, you don't see that anymore. He's not addressing the church. Why? Because the church is in heaven. Starting in chapter 4 and 5, we see the church now in heaven worshiping around the throne with God. And in chapters 6 through 19, we see the judgment on this world. The church has been removed. And so we'll look at that today. Uh, and I want you to see some of those things with me as we go through this, these verses. So look back at Revelation 4.1. And I want to give you a few things this morning to think about. Number one is that there is a commencement. There is a beginning of something that is going to take place. Revelation 4.1 says, John says, After these things I looked and I saw or behold there was a door standing open in heaven. In the book of Revelation there are several doors, but just a few verses back in Revelation 3 verses 20 and 21, Jesus said to the church at Laodicea, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, he will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. Listen, here it is. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We don't see that language after chapter 3, because again, I believe the church has been removed. But during this age, what we are in, the church age, where the gospel is being proclaimed and the church is still here, that is the call that is made. Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. A lot of times we use this illustration as an individual. He's knocking on your heart's door. And to some degree I get that, but the proper interpretation of this is he is knocking on the door of the church. We are to be the vessel that introduces sinners to Christ so that they can come into the kingdom. That is the mission of the church. We have talked about it. It's our vision for this year, our mission, one by one, getting outside the walls. Listen, one way that a church absolutely will die and will fail is if we do not multiply by reaching people outside the doors. And we see churches close their doors every week because they have failed to evangelize. They got comfortable with what they had inside here, my four and no more, and they didn't care about reaching out to anybody. And so they stayed that little group in their holy huddle until they died. And that's unfortunate, but it happens all the time. And when we lose sight of the mission which is out there, we will die too as a church if we're not reaching the lost. We are to be those that point. We aren't the door. Listen, salvation is not by the church. You don't come in here, join and become a member, and I baptize you, and that means that you're in the kingdom of heaven. You can come here every Sunday until the Lord returns or you go home and uh, out of this life. That doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you're a member of K. Russo Baptist Church does not mean you are a child of God. Salvation is through Christ. But the church is to be the door that leads you to Christ. But Jesus himself is the door to salvation. John 10, verses 7 through 9. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. If you want to become a sheep, if you want him to be your shepherd, you have got to go through that door, the door that is Jesus Christ. He says, if you go, uh, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone, listen, if anyone enters 
by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So Jesus is the door that leads to salvation. The church is the one that opens the door as Jesus knocks and allows sinners to come and receive Christ by our preaching of the gospel. Not just what the pastor does, but all of you as believers. Again, our verse for the year, Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world and preach, Caruso, the gospel to every creature. That is our duty now more than ever. Why? Because the moments that we are reading about today are very close. And if you are not ready, you are going to face what we read in 2 Thessalonians 2, not what we're rejoicing about in Revelation 4. That's the difference. There's two classes of people here. Revelation 4 is for believers. Revelation, or 2 Thessalonians 2 is for unbelievers. And so we're looking at a difference here, guys, a fundamental difference between who is going in the rapture and who is left behind after the rapture takes place. And the difference is, are you a follower of Jesus or not? Followers of Jesus are going home to be with Jesus. Those that have rejected Jesus and have chosen this world will get this world. He's not being mean. He's not being respecter of persons. He is honoring your wish. Week after week, we present the gospel to you. Week after week, we implore you to come and receive Christ. And you say, no, thank you. I'm going to do my thing, and I'm going to do it my way. And Jesus at some point is going to say, okay, have it your way. And it'll be too late for you. That is the seriousness of what we're looking at today. So John sees this door standing open in heaven. The door will be opened, and the church, all believers of all time, are going to enter through that door, which was Christ, and now leads them into the eternal kingdom of God. That is the joy that awaits the church. We are going home. We are not going to endure a time of judgment and wrath on this earth because Jesus took the judgment for us. Why would God pour out His wrath on believers whom Jesus already took the wrath for? It makes no sense. And so, so many people today to say, well, I hope that we don't have to go through the tribulation and I hope we don't have to suffer. Listen, you're going to have to suffer to some degree. Maybe not in the tribulation kind of suffering, but suffering is a reality. It's time that we stop buying into this hogwash of this prosperity gospel that says if you follow Jesus, you never get sick, you never get poor, you never have problems. That's baloney. And anybody that lives more than 10 minutes can recognize that it's baloney. But you keep listening to these charlatans that say, well, maybe you just need to sow a bigger seed of faith. Maybe you just need to pay a little more money. Maybe you just need to do a little bit. Maybe you need to open up your Bible and read it. That's what I say. Because you're not going to find it. And it's so frustrating because I see so many people who truly are followers of Jesus, but they've been so brainwashed and deceived into thinking that God's made promises to them that He never made, and when things fall apart, their faith falls apart. And these people that are supposed to be their spiritual advisors are not helping them, they're hindering them in their walk of, with Christ, if they really have that walk. And so I want you to see that, yes, in this world there'll be tribulation, but be of good cheer, Jesus said, I've overcome the world. There's going to be suffering. The Bible says if we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. Over and over and over again. Every one of the disciples died terrible deaths except John. All of them died martyrs. Did Jesus fail them? He said there's never been anyone greater on earth than John the Baptist. How did John the Baptist life evoke? John was obedient in everything. He went out before Jesus was born and proclaimed the gospel and said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He was faithful to serve Jesus all of his life. Did he die with a big house and a bunch of cattle and all kinds of money and healthy and wealthy and prosperous like these, these people on TBN tell you that you're supposed to be today? He died in a prison with his head being chopped off for standing up for Jesus. But you know what? The moment that that axe swung down and chopped off his head... He was alive with Christ forever. And that's the difference. The Bible says, what does it matter if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Listen, don't be so caught up in this life that you miss the next. It is time to refocus your priorities. There's nothing wrong with having stuff. There's nothing wrong with going out and trying to provide a good life. But don't let this life keep you from eternal life. Don't chase everything here that you're not chasing and pursuing Jesus. That is foolish. 
and it will cost you your soul. And so we see this door open for the church. All who come by faith in Christ are going to one day walk through that door in Revelation 4.1 and enter into the kingdom of God, both those that have already died and those that are alive when he returns for this rapture moment with his church. And so John tells us, John is kind of a representative, if you will, for all believers in this passage. He sees this door open, and I love this, as, as he's seeing these things, the first voice, John says, I heard was like a trumpet. He didn't say he heard a trumpet. He said, he, I heard a voice that was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here. So he hears a voice, and this voice sounds like a trumpet. I want to read 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 again to you. Just again, kind of getting this idea in our minds. It says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with what? A shout. A shout. See, Baptist, it's okay to shout sometimes. It's in the Bible. If Jesus does it, it's okay if you do it sometimes. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Harpazo will be raptured, will be snatched out of here. Instantly we are taken up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus shall we always be with the Lord. You know what as I read that got me so excited to think about? There's not a lot of times when it's mentioned but do you know every time I could find and I might have missed some but every time I could find that Jesus shouted there was a resurrection. Every single reference I found where Jesus shouts or cries out people came out of the grave. Let me give you a couple of those. John eleven forty three. 43, when Lazarus died, Jesus comes on the scene. He intentionally waited four days to make sure that Lazarus was good and dead, that he wasn't coming back. And the sisters are crying and people are crying and they say, Jesus, if you would have got here sooner, you could have done something about this. And he says, I'm telling you that your brother will live. And they say, yeah, I know he'll live on the resurrection day. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet will he live. And he who believes in me will never die. And then he asks the question, do you believe this? Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life? Do you really believe today, I'm asking you personally, do you believe that when you place faith in Jesus Christ, that one day when you draw your last breath, you will live forever with him? That's what saving faith is. Saving faith says, I am a sinner in need of mercy and grace. I am hell-bound without Christ. But if I will trust Him, He has promised to forgive my sins, to cleanse me, and to guarantee that I will live forever with Him. The empty tomb proves that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so... Listen to this. He comes to the tomb. They roll aside the stone. And here's what happened, John eleven forty three. Now when he had said these things, what does he do? Cried out with a loud voice. In other words, he shouted, Lazarus, come forth. I've heard preachers saying this. They're probably right. You know why he called Lazarus by name? Because if he just would have said, come forth, all the dead would have come out of the graves. He called Lazarus by name. And Lazarus Come out of the grave. Let me give you another one. Matthew 27, verses 50 to 52. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. He's on the cross. He cries out and he yielded up his spirit. And when he cried out, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, had died, were risen. Jesus crying out equals a resurrection. And I'm so glad when we read that verse and we see what's going on in Revelation 4.1, when the Father says, go get my church, and that shout is made, the dead in Christ are going to rise. And in the Bible, when you hear trumpets, they were used for different things. They were used to call a war together. They were used to call praise and worship together. But what they always did was assemble the people. And when Jesus shouts, the dead are going to rise and the trumpet's going to sound, and that's the assembly of the church together in heaven. That is the promise we have. That is what God is doing for us. He has opened a door through Christ that no one can shut, and when we leave this earth or when the rapture takes place, we are all as believers going through that door into eternity 
to be with Him. The shout will declare it to those that are still alive, and the trumpet will summon us home. And man, what a day that will be. What a day that will be. And I know that sometimes we get so enamored with the rapture that that's all we start to think about is, I just can't wait to get out of this earth and blah, blah, blah. But listen, we have work to do. If without us, this world will never hear the truth. It is our duty to get out there and tell people because the goal is to take as many people with us as we can. That basket right down there is full of names of people that unless something's changed between the time you wrote that and today are not going. That's the seriousness. If they, if they die today without Christ, they are lost. If the rapture takes place, they are left behind. That is the urgency. I'm not saying that to make you discouraged. I'm not saying that to cause you to fear. I'm trying to get you to understand that the finality of this thing is upon us and we don't have much time left. And if we don't get serious and we don't share the gospel and we don't live out Christian lives in front of people, are they ever going to want what we have? Are they ever going to take us serious if we look just like them? They're going to say, why do I need this Jesus? I live better than you. You talk about this and you talk about that. You talk about how much you love God, but you sure don't show it. It's time that we start letting our lives match what we say we believe. We're going to fall short. We're still going to sin. But we can't continue to make excuses and we certainly can't continue to pursue the things that Jesus died for. Why are we living in sin if Jesus has cleansed us from it? We've got to be honest about the fact that this is the Laodicean church age. This is the lukewarm church age. Listen, I can 1,000% speak on behalf of every pastor, Sunday school teacher, youth leader, when I say the last thing on earth that any of us want to spend another second of our time doing is begging Christians to come to church. I don't want to ever, I don't want to ever, 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 ever have to ask a believer to come to church because I shouldn't have to. George and Melody should never have to say, will you please bring your kids to youth group. The Sunday school teacher should never have to say, please bring your kids to Sunday school. That should be such a given, such an opportunity that you should just want to do. And again, I'm not trying to shame people, but I am trying to get you to see that there is a disconnect, a drastic disconnect. And we live in a world today that says, I can have Jesus, but I'm not too big on church. Like that is just, that's just not biblical. I'm not here trying to just promote a church thing. I, I, don't, I don't get a, a bonus if I hit a certain quota. Like if we hit 200 people, I get an extra 10% of my check. It doesn't work that way. I am genuinely saying this because I am concerned that we are going to lose the next generation if something doesn't change. I've been preaching this for years, and I see it continue to go down this slippery slope where parents are more concerned that their kids have all the things in the world that they didn't have with very little emphasis put on Christ. And listen, I am thankful if you brought them to VBS or you brought them to Sunday school or you brought them to an outreach event and they got to know Jesus. But what happens is if they got Jesus when they were five and for the next 13 years you never disciple them and never bring them back to church, when they turn 18, I've seen very little of them become missionaries and true followers of Jesus. They are, if, if they really got saved at all, they have no foundation they have no understanding and the world, especially if they go off to a university and they get it so indoctrinated, they have no idea what the Bible says, nor do they want to. And so I'm just trying to get you to realize, listen, you're their parents and I can't tell you how to parent them, but this book does. And if you're a Christian, I pray that you will say, listen, there's some tough decisions going to have to be made in my household. But the most important thing for me is to know that my child had every opportunity to know Jesus. Because listen, when they hit 18, you can say, my job's done, I raised them, they graduated, I'm good to go. But they got a life ahead of them. And the many of the things that you poured into them or didn't pour into them are going to come out in their life. And if you laid a strong foundation and showed them the importance of Christ and the Bible and the church, there's a good chance, not always, but there's a good chance that they will continue that with their family. The reason why we see this generational decline is because it's become less and less important. And I'm telling you, I am telling you that there are going to be many 
that think they are leaving when you hear this shout and this trumpet and you're going to be terrified to find out that you were left behind. This is no time to play games. If ever, if you can't honestly with 1,000% certainty say, I know for certain that if my time comes today, I am going to be with Christ in heaven, you need to get things right. Listen, that's not being arrogant. That's not being presumptuous. Jesus said, if you truly repent of your sins and trust Him, He will save you. If Jesus said it, if I can't rest in that, then there's no certainty in anything. And so... Listen, I don't want you to say, well, I made a profession of faith. Look, I got a Bible, Pastor, and my name's right here on the front. You even wrote it, Pastor. You wrote in my Bible and signed my baptism certificate, so I know I'm good to go. Listen, I've signed a lot of baptism certificates, and I've had a lot of Bibles imprinted, and I'm certain that not all those folks that I handed those to really knew Jesus. I hate to say that. We do the best we can as a church. If you come and say, hey, I received Jesus, all I can go by is your profession. But that doesn't always mean that it's genuine profession. And you say, well, how do I know for sure? You know by the change in your life. You know by the fruit that you bear. You know by the desire that you have. Listen, again, it doesn't mean that you never sin. It doesn't mean that you never stray. It means that your life changed. When you met Jesus Christ, when you met this Jesus that rose up out of the grave, Paul Washer, you ever heard of Paul Washer? He gives an illustration like this. He says, imagine if we were in a church service. And we were waiting on the preacher. And it was 10, 15 minutes later. And finally the door opened and the preacher came in. And everybody's looking and they said, you're you're awful late. What happened? You won't believe this, he says. My car broke down. And I got out of the car to see what was going on. And a semi ran over me. And I got up and dusted myself off. And here I am. And the point Paul Washer makes in that illustration is he says, as ridiculous as that sounds and as unrealistic as that is, it's far more ridiculous to say that you met the risen, glorified Christ, stood in His presence, and by faith said, Lord, save me and change me, and you got up and walked away from that and have not been changed one bit. There's a better chance of a semi running you down and you getting up than you standing in the presence of Jesus Christ and saying, Lord, forgive me, and not being changed by that. I can tell you for certain that on September 27th of 1999, Jesus found me in my living room, and I have never, ever been the same since the day that I called upon His name. Ever, ever have I failed Him many times. Have I sinned more times than I can count? But I can tell you that He who began a good work in me will see it until the day of Jesus Christ. And you need to have that certainty today. Listen, you can really be saved and lack assurance. It's possible. There's many people that are really Christians and they walk around and they are always wringing their hands saying, I hope I'm saved. I sure, I sure hope so. But I'm saying if you have no evidence, you have no right to claim to be a believer today if there is no proof in your life at all that you're different. But you can change that today. You can change that today by faith. You can change that today by really coming and saying, Lord, I'm laying down my life. I'm surrendering my all to you. I want to be different. I want to be your child. Save me and forgive me. And based on the promise of the Word of God, He will do that. But you've got to stop playing games. And you've got to stop making excuses. And you've got to stop putting it off. You have got to make some hard decisions with your life and with your family's life. And that's where it gets serious because this last part real quick that I want you to see in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, I'm going to show you the things that which will take place after this. The door was open in heaven. The church went up and the church went in. And now... In the following chapters of Revelation, John shows, Jesus shows through John, what the world is going to go through. And that is going to be called the tribulation. Seven years where God is going to pour out a judgment upon this earth, the likes of which have never been seen and never will be seen again. God is going to time and time again through the bowls and the seals and the trumpets execute judgment after judgment, famines, wars, natural disasters like this world has never seen. False prophets, deceivers, and this is what awaits you without Jesus Christ. Again, I'm not up here today to try to scare you into faith. I'm up here today to warn you that without faith, this is what Jesus says is coming. But more than that, I want you to know if you are left behind, you need to be prepared. You need to understand what you're going to face because what's going to happen, 
Here's the big question. Can you imagine if before I got done, boom, the Lord calls the church out of here and all of a sudden there are millions of people missing? What on earth is going to be the answer, the explanation for that? I think that's a big part of it. And you say, boy, Melissa's lost her mind and the pastor's lost his mind too. Well, listen, if you just look, like you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist. I don't have to put my tinfoil hat on to see that there's a lot of stuff going on in our world that just seems to be escalating quickly. And, and I, again, I, I, I understand, listen, not everything on Facebook is real. Not everything on the Internet is true. I understand all that. Be careful what you post and share because a lot of it is foolishness. But there is some truth usually buried in there somewhere. And you can see all of these things. I do believe that there will be a one-world government. I do believe that there will be a one-world currency. I do believe that there will be a one-world leader. I do believe that America is going to collapse from the inside out. I do believe that the family is being destroyed intentionally. I do believe that all of these things are taking place because there is a great deception coming upon us. I do believe that the enemy wants to create this hatred towards Christianity and Christian values. So that anyone who stands on that stuff is silenced, is persecuted, and in some places, maybe here one day, is executed for their faith. We are there and we are heading there. And you have got to have your head buried in the sand to not see it. And I'm telling you, I don't know, I don't know how long the church will have to go. No one does. I don't know how long that God will allow the church to remain here. Until the rapture, I know we won't go through the tribulation, but how bad does it get before that starts? I don't know. And you can't say that you do either with any certainty. But I'm saying that before it gets terrible, God is taking the church out before the tribulation. But there's a lot of things that are going to take place. And one scripture that that has always kind of stuck in my mind is Luke 17. Luke 17, verses 26 and 27. If you have your Bible, don't just look at the screen on this one. I want you to see this because this is important. Luke 17, verses 26 and 27. And this is, if you were with us on Wednesday night, if you're not, I, I would love to invite you to start coming on Wednesday nights. But this is just a little important thing you can take out of here today. And when you study your Bible, this will help you. If you read Luke 17 any scripture, but today we're looking at Luke 17, verses 26 and 27. Have you ever read in your Bible, and as you're reading, you see all these little little small letters and numbers, and you're like, oh, why they put that little A in there, and they got this number one in there inside of the verse? Those are called cross-references. So what that means is when you're reading a verse and you see a little letter next to it, like an A, if you look over in the center column, or some Bibles have it at the bottom of the Bible, you find that verse, and it'll give you other verses that match with this verse, okay? So, for example, when I read Luke 17, verse 26, it says, And as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, and they were given to marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Well, if you look at verse 26, and you see a little letter A, mine starts at the very beginning of the verse, Yours may be somewhere else. But then you look in the middle at verse uh, 26, you'll see some cross-references. Matthew, mine has Matthew 24, 37 through 39, Genesis 6, 1 Peter 3. I think every Bible I looked at that I had had Genesis 6 as one of the cross-references. Because that verse always struck me as odd. Like, as in the days of Noah, so is it going to be when Jesus returns. So... If we want to get an idea of some signs, like what's the world going to be like before Jesus comes back, he's saying that the world is going to be just like it was in Noah's time before he flooded the earth. Now, I think there is an illusion in the fact that people were just going about normal daily things. They were marrying and being given to marry and eating and drinking and just going about life. But I think there's more to it than just that, because that's happened always. What, what, what was different in Noah's time and what's going to be different in the last day time before Jesus comes back? Look at, look at that verse. Uh, we can put that one on the screen. Genesis 6, 1 through 5. Listen, listen to what it says there. It says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. 
And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Now look at what he says next. There were what? Giants on the earth in those days. Question, where did the giants, do you think, come from? There's a lot of opinions on that. But back in verse 2 that we just read, it said, The sons of God procreated with the daughters of men. That word, the sons of God, has been interpreted different ways. But to make a long story short, throughout the Bible, it's a, I believe it's a reference to fallen demonic creatures. So you have these demonic, this Nephilim, if you want, that's the Hebrew word, these Nephilim, these demonic creatures inhabiting human bodies, procreating with the daughters of men to create these giants that were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God, here it is, the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the... Now listen. What does it say about these giants? Those were the mighty men who were of old. Men of renown. Listen, we've seen tall men. Robert Wardlow is one of the largest men in the Guinness Book of Records that has ever lived. He was not a mighty man. He had to walk around with a cane. He could barely move. He was 8 foot 10 or something like that. He was not an intimidating, I mean, his size was intimidating, but he is not some, what they're describing here. This is not people who had a pituitary gland issue and just grew big. This is something different. Go on. Then the Lord saw, here's, here's what happened with this generation. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That was what was going on in Noah's time. And that's what Jesus says the world is going to be like when things happen. You say, now wait a minute, Pastor. Are you saying that demons are having babies and there's a bunch of giants that's going to be walking around on the earth? I'm not saying that exactly. And, and again, listen, you probably think I'm crazy. Me and Melissa will be crazy. But you see it more and more. All right? Listen, again, Google is not right on everything, okay? You take this or leave this, you can call me nuts. I'm not saying that I'm exactly right, that I know for sure, but here's the thing. Did you all see a couple weeks ago down in Miami, Florida, what was going on down there? Now, nobody knows for sure, and there's all kinds of silly things on TikTok and all that other stuff like there always is. So I'm not saying that this is true, not true, or any of that stuff, but these are the headlines, if nothing else. These are the headlines. If you Google it, if you Google don't do it now. Wait till you're out of church. But if you Google Miami, Florida alien, all right, do you know what will come up? Ten-foot aliens running around the mall. Here's another interesting thing. Google sometime, Google UFO smell. UFO smell. Like everybody, there's, art, there's pages and pages of articles of people that claim to have had encounters with UFOs, and they all say the same thing. What does it smell like? What was it? Put, uh, what's that verse? Revelation 20.10. Put that up there. Revelation 20.10. And the devil had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire, and what? Where the beast and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Listen, I'm not saying that there's demonic giants. Don't go home today and say, Pastor at K. Russo has lost his ever-loving mind. He told me that there is giant monsters running around at the mall in Florida. I am just telling you that all of this stuff is already being put out there because when the church disappears and Christians are gone off the earth, there is going to have to be some kind of explanations out there, and I think there will be many, but I can almost guarantee that this will be one that some kind of alien involvement, these folks would not bend to the system, and so they were taken out to be retrained, basically. Because, listen, what do people say the aliens are? Like the New Age stuff, all the aliens put us here 20,000 years ago, they left us here, and then they went off back to their planet. And so when aliens come back, they're going to take the ones that wouldn't bow and bend and do all that stuff. They removed us for some retraining and left the rest of you here that believe. There's going to be so much deception, guys. It talks about these false teachers. And what's one of the things that the false teachers are going to say about the rapture? Ha! It wasn't a rapture. If it was a rapture, I'd be gone. I'm still here. Well, no, you're still here for another reason. 
You're still here because you never knew Jesus and you've deceived a whole lot of other people. But listen, there are so many false teachers that are going to come out and say, well, it couldn't have been a rapture. Look, our church is still here. And so all these deceived people out there are now going to have this religious awakening and they're going to flock to these churches or they're going to get deceived even more. And so they're stuck in this thing. And the scary thing about it is, remember what I read in 2 Thessalonians 2.11? Who sends the strong delusion? God sends it. Because you have chosen and chosen to believe a lie and to reject the truth when the truth is going to be so evident and so clear in front of you, God is going to make this deception so deep that you won't be able to believe the truth. That is scary to me. And so I want you to understand if the rapture takes place and you remember this message where some crazy lunatic pastor stood up and talked about aliens and sulfur and all that other stuff, please don't believe anything that you see on the news, anything that you see from these apostate churches, because I'm telling you that the reason why all those people disappeared is because they went home to be with glory. That's where they went. It wasn't aliens. It wasn't anything else. And you have got to be ready for this. You need to be ready before it takes place. But I want you to understand the seriousness. Now, you may think I've completely lost my mind, and that's okay if you do. But my duty is to warn you. I could be so far off base and so wrong, I don't think I am. But if I am, okay. Everybody thinks I'm nuts, not the first time, won't be the last. But if I'm right, then this may be the only thing that will help you get through that time. The only thing that keeps you from falling into that deception and trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. This may be what you need to hear today to stop playing these games and get right. There is going to be a separation of the church and the world should already be one when you got saved. But I'm talking about a physical separation when God calls His church home. I'm asking you point blank today, are you ready? A hundred percent certain that you are going to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you can't honestly, between, I don't need to know, but you and Him should know. If you can't say, I am 100% certain, and I am certain not but because, again, because I got a Bible, not because I was baptized, not because I'm a good person, not because I come to church regularly. If you can't say that you are born again because there has been a change in your life and a continual change in your life because of faith in Christ, then there is a problem in your profession. Period. But you don't have to stay in that place. We give an invitation every week. Listen, I want to be clear about what the invitation is and what it isn't. The invitation is an opportunity to respond to what you've just heard. Walking that aisle doesn't save you. Praying a prayer doesn't save you. Laying hands on you doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. And the response to the message is, Lord, I am lost. My sins have separated me from you. And I am coming today publicly to show the world and to come to you to say, I want you to save my soul and forgive me of my sins and change my life. That's what the invitation is for. Not for anything else. There's no guarantee if you walk forward and pray a prayer, he's going to fix your marriage, give you a job, heal your cancer. He can. But that's not what we're calling you to come for. We'll pray for you gladly for those things. But the invitation is for you to come and get things right with Jesus. And if you're a Christian and nobody knows you're a Christian or they're shocked to find out when you say you are a Christian, then whatever's going on in your life that's causing you to look more like the world than Jesus, the invitation is the time to come and say, change those things in my life. I want my family, my friends, my coworkers, my neighbors to see Jesus when they see me. That's what I want because, church, that's what we need. That's what the world needs. And God will use you, but he won't use you until you surrender. Father, we come to you today just grateful that you love us and you give us your word and you give us this opportunity. Lord, I, I don't want, you don't want any to perish, but that all should reach repentance. And Lord, we as a church don't want to see anyone left behind, and they don't need to be. And so God, in this invitation, I pray that you will deal with hearts, and that you will save souls and change lives. If you're calling someone into the ministry, if whatever you're doing here today, Lord, I pray that they would let go and surrender and follow you. And we'll give you all the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Phyllis, you come. Phyllis is going to lead us in a song of invitation. The altar is open. There's people here that will pray with you. I will pray with you. But you have got to respond in faith. Because Jesus is the only one.